Well, as that short intro video showed you, we're calling this sermon series as we go through the beginning part of Luke, Faith in a Time of Uncertainty. And the theme of certainty is important to Luke. You would have picked it up right there at the beginning of our reading in verse 3. In those first four verses, Luke kind of maps out his agenda for the gospel. And verse 3, he says, with this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that's the name of the benefactor who would have paid for the work as Luke pulled this gospel together, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Certainty, confidence, security, solidity, that's what Luke is writing about. That's what he wants his readers in the first century to get from this gospel of his, and that's what he wants us to get today, 2,000 years on. Now, look, certainty and stability are important, and I don't think I need to convince you of that on the back of a period which has been so unsettling for the last 12, 18 months or so. Um, there's a lot of research, for example, by the Urban Institute or similarly by the Children's Commissioner in the United Kingdom. They actually do a so-called stability index, which looks particularly in the lives of um, children and young adults at the significant impact that certainty and stability has on their lives. Um, I was looking at some of the research, and it showed, for example, that the more stable their home environment, um, the more stable their emotional relationships they're engaged in, the greater ability they have to form healthy relationships in the long term, the better social, cognitive, and academic outcomes, the fewer antisocial behavioral problems that manifest, and better development through the adolescent years and into early adulthood, and I, I could go on. In other words, certainty and stability is crucial, but of course, it's not just important for children. It's important for adults, too. Uh, think of your life a bit like a building project. Certainty and stability are the foundations we lay, and you don't need to be an architect or a builder to know that having solid foundations to build on is really important. But if the foundational relationships or if trust in institutions or in people is low like it often is said to be today, then it's as though the foundations are not rock, but they're kind of sand shifting all the time. And any building, any architecture built on that will start to show cracks. And I wonder if part of the challenge of the last 12 to 18 months hasn't only been what we've been facing, but has been the fact that we haven't really had the foundation solid enough to work it through. And so the cracks have shown, haven't they? And I'm not talking about the circumstances of the pandemic, but I'm talking about the way we've responded as a society and maybe for you individually. And so into that context, Luke writes to give us what we so desperately need, certainty. And we're going to see three ways that certainty works out this morning. The certainty of the promise that Luke is focusing on this morning, the response to the promise, and then the joy of the promise. So it's all focused on these promises that God gives us, and we're going to look, first of all, at the certainty of those promises. So let's look at the certainty of the promise. Now, first, let me just give you a bit of an overview, because we're going to actually look at the whole of chapter one, but it's a long chapter, so we didn't have the time to do the whole reading. And I also want to just tee up a little bit how it um, sets itself up in the wider book as well. Luke didn't just write the book of Luke, he also wrote the book of Acts, and it's kind of helpful to view them as like volume one and volume two. And they're all about certainty. And in these early chapters, Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2, Luke is laying the foundations of God's promise of a birth of a Savior. 
promise of a birth of a new king, and then the birth of the new king. So chapter 1 is all about the promise, and chapter 2 is about the arrival, and that's why we often have it read at Christmas, because that's the time when, you know, when we remember the birth of Jesus Christ as king. And Luke's really helpful because he's a very careful writer. As he said, he's written an orderly account. And so he gives us kind of markers as we're going through Luke's gospel, which we'll become more familiar with, which help us to navigate how things are going on. So you can see that he intends chapter 1 and chapter 2 to be a kind of unit, partly because it starts straight after his introduction in the temple with Zechariah, the priest at the time, ministering in the temple. And if you just turn over the page, you'll see that when we actually get to the end of chapter 2, we get a little subtitle, The Boy in the Temple. This is Jesus in the Temple. So you get the the same place, the temple, at the beginning end of chapter 2. You get the same theme, Zechariah, about to become a father. And you get Jesus' parents working out the challenges of fathering the Messiah at the end of chapter 2. And then Luke also gives us little markers that kind of show you that he's um, making a unit. And you get one right at the end of chapter 2, verse 52, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. It's kind of like a a wrapping up to that little section. So chapter 1 and chapter 2 are a a unit. Chapter 1 about the promise of Jesus' birth. Chapter 2 about the birth itself. Well, so much for just getting your bearings. What I want you to see is that as Luke comes to these promises, he wants us to know how certain they are. And he gives us a number of layers to this certainty. First of all, he gives us a historic certainty. And this is all about his method, which he's keen that we know. He said, verse 2, that he has consulted and investigated the eyewitnesses. So he goes straight to the sources. He himself is not an eyewitness to Jesus, but he has talked to and he's investigated the eyewitnesses. He's investigated it very carefully, verse 3, and then he's written an orderly account at the end of verse 3. In other words, he's keen to trace a kind of line of succession from the events to the eyewitnesses, to his investigation, to his account. He's saying, this is no Chinese whispers, so I'm going to tell you some incredible things. This really happened in space, time, and history. And if you doubt that, see the process I've been through of investigation to verification to writing it all down. And look, we know because we can place the date of Luke's gospel um, because of the dates of the things that happened in Acts that Luke's gospel was in wide circulation by the mid-AD 60s. So we're talking here only 30 years after the events took place. The Chinese whispers hypothesis just can't work, right? You can't do Chinese whispers in an oral culture where everything is always verified, cross-checked, did that happen, didn't it happen, in the very place where the people who were actually around when it happened are still alive if it's being publicized, right? 30 years, people would just say, no, no, that, that didn't happen like that. I mean, go and speak to Mary. She's just over there. She's still alive. She can tell you it didn't happen like that. No, we can be sure this happened as it's written down precisely because Luke is such a careful historian. But it's not only that he's a careful historian, but also notice how he describes at the end of verse 2 that the people he talked to were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. What he's doing there is he's placing the events in the whole sweep of Scripture. He's saying these things that happened didn't just arise out of nothing. They had been talked about. They had been written about. They had been prophesied throughout hundreds of years of Bible history. The Messiah was going to come, that he would be born in Bethlehem, 
the nature of his coming. All of these things had been prophesied. And so the eyewitnesses are serving the prophecies of the word. They're serving the promises as well. So there's the historic certainty, but there's also the scriptural certainty as well. These things have been prophesied hundreds of years before, so when they happen now, it verifies them as being certain. And then thirdly, what is this certainty all based on? Well, in the account, we didn't get a time to, um, to see this in our reading, but we only got to see one of them, but it's based on two angelic visitations and two miraculous births. The first visit by the angel Gabriel is to an elderly man called Zechariah. He's serving at the temple. He's a priest. His um, wife, Elizabeth, is elderly. Technically, that's the Bible's way of saying she's post-menopause. They've never been able to have children. And the angel Gabriel says, you're going to have a child. A miraculous birth, obviously. And not just any child, but the child who's going to become John the Baptist, who will prepare the way for the Christ. Verse 14 your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you're to call him John. And then verse 17, John will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make people ready, prepared for the Lord. So this is a miraculous appearing of an angel. It's a miraculous birth, all leading to a remarkable life, all preparing for the Lord himself coming. And then in our reading, we did get the angel Gabriel visiting a second time now to Mary in Nazareth, verse 31. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you're to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will have no end. Now, please don't miss the importance here. Um, in the ancient world, if a king wanted to give his authority um, to something, wanted to guarantee the certainty of his commitment to something, what he would sometimes do was he would take off his signet ring and he would give his signet ring to the envoy. So when the envoy arrived, they would provide the signet ring of the king. In other words, saying this could only come from the king. If you doubt that it really has got his guarantee, here's the signet ring. And it would seal the deal, as it were. It would give the certainty. Well, here what we're getting is God's signet ring the certainty of the historic account, the certainty of the prophecies beforehand, and the certainty guaranteed by two angelic visitations by the angel Gabriel and two miraculous births, a birth to a couple who were too old to have children and a birth to a virgin who'd never known a man in, intimacy, in sexual intimacy. Now, I think this is fascinating because often, if you're talking to people who may be a bit more secular, they'll say that one of the reasons to doubt the Bible is the miraculous. But do you see here that Luke is actually pointing to the miraculous as one of the reasons to have certainty? Because here's the point. He's saying, what could God give us his signet ring to guarantee it, to reassure you? Well, only something God can do. So the point of it being miraculous is exactly the point. Only God can bring life from a dead womb. Only God can breathe life into a womb that has had never known sexual intimacy. Only God can do that. Only God can fulfill hundreds of years of prophecy only God. So I wonder if you're looking in this morning and you're saying, like, I'm just not sure how I feel about the miracles. Have you thought of this? What would you require of God to reassure you? Isn't it something that only God can do? If it's just a normal birth, that doesn't reassure you. No, God does the miraculous to give you the certainty that you crave. So don't dismiss it just because it's miraculous. 
You know, that is completely circular. Accept it as you engage with it, look at the prophecies, look at the Scripture, and see how it gives you the confidence that you're longing for, the certainty of the promises. Now let's look to the response of the promises. If we had a little bit more time, I'd really love to show you quite how comedic the response of Zechariah is. Let me try to bring out a little bit of it to you and how he responds to the promise and just how very differently we're then going to see that Mary responds to the promise. Mary is the kind of archetype of the faith we should have. Zechariah very much not. So Zechariah has come to his moment of, on the rota for serving in the temple. He's the, he's the priest, which means that he can go into the most holy place in the temple where the incense is burned at the altar. And he's been longing for a child for a long time. But as he leaves all the people outside and goes into the inner courts, all of the gathered assembly of Israel are all praying. Now, what are they praying for? Well, we know from history they are praying for the coming of the Messiah. They're longing for God's king to come for two reasons. One, they haven't heard from God for 400 years. The prophets have been silent. And secondly, they've been conquered by the Romans. So they've got two powerful reasons for longing for God's Messiah to come. Zechariah goes into the inner courts, and there he is confronted by the angel Gabriel standing at the very altar of God. And as he talks to the angel Gabriel, I mean, imagine the, the scene, the kind of the, the, the surprise the complete kind of shock that Terry wasn't expecting to see anybody else there. And then we get verse 12. When Zechariah saw him, the angel, he was startled and was gripped with fear. That's a divine understatement. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you. And verse 15, he will be great in the sight of the Lord because he's going to prepare the way for the Messiah. In other words, the prayers of everyone outside, what they're praying for right now, is answered right now. The prayers for 400 years, Zechariah, you're the priest, it's been answered. And what does he, how does he respond? Hallelujah, it's been answered. No, he doesn't at all. His expression represents where Israel are at at the moment. Doubt. Verse 18, can you give me a little bit more evidence? I mean, just think about that. I pause. What, more evidence than an angelic visitation in the holy place of the temple prophesying a miraculous birth? You want more? You see the point? It's supposed to be slightly comedic. It's okay to titter at it. It's ridiculous. The priest wanting more evidence than that? What could be more than that? I mean, what do you want him to do? Do a backflip? The whole point here is enough evidence has been given to Zechariah, but Zechariah doubts. Now, please, let me just be careful here. There is no problems with asking questions. We're a church community here. We, we welcome questions. Both Mark and, and I as communists, we actually both came to faith from non-believing backgrounds because we were fortunate enough to have people around us who let us ask our questions. You know, faith is not the opposite of asking good questions. Nor is faith actually the opposite of having some doubts. Everyone has doubts. There's no such thing as 100% certainty. But there is a type of question and there is a type of doubt that comes from a kind of hard-hearted pride that says, yeah, that, that's kind of okay, God, but just give me more evidence, then I'll believe. You know, have you ever had a conversation with someone, this might even be you, where you, you present them with the evidence, and they say, that's just not quite enough, is it? I mean, it's not quite certain enough. And you're thinking, what would be certain enough? An angel in the holy place prophesying a miraculous birth, is that not enough? And so Zechariah is struck dumb by the angel, verse 19, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and now here I am, and I've been sent to speak to you, good news, and you don't believe, and now, verse 20, you'll be silent and not able to speak 
until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words. In other words, you had enough evidence. Now, you might think, well, that's a little bit harsh, but just notice two things about him being struck down. First of all, there's actual mercy in it, because as Zechariah goes away, and as he can't speak, that itself is evidence to him, isn't it? He asked for more evidence. Well, he's got it now, just not quite what he wanted. You know, for six months now, he's going to be not able to speak, and every time he's going to know why. Also, it's also a public evidence as well. As he goes out, and there's this kind of comic, you know, you can imagine Game of Charades as he tries to communicate to hundreds of worshippers what's happened and he can't speak. That also is evidence that something miraculous has happened to him and something miraculous is going to happen as well now with his wife giving birth to a boy. So there's a kind of severe mercy to it. One commentator put it this way, Gabriel's judgment does not result in Zechariah's fall from grace, nor does it halt the fulfillment of God's promise. It is a remedial work of the Spirit, a severe mercy that enables faith. That's Zechariah who doubts. Don't be like him. Let's look instead at Mary. As often in the Bible, the women show the way forward. This is how she responds. She is given the same visitation. She's given a no less difficult to believe promise. How does she respond? Well, she's told, verse 31, you will conceive and give birth to a son. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. She too has a question. Verse 34, but it's a different question. How will this be? Not give me more evidence, but how should, I mean, you can see her asking, should I get married? If I'm going to have a child, I mean, I, I could bear a child, should I do I need to consummate a marriage? Is that how it's going to happen? How? And she's told, no, 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 this is going to be miraculous by the intervention of the Holy Spirit. And she responds, verse 38, with some famous words that have echoed down history of words of faith. I am the Lord's servant. See her humility in receiving this promise? May your word to me be fulfilled. Her humility and her trusting faith. She must have had so many questions so many insecurities as a young woman, and yet she trusts and she receives great blessing as a result. One of the great themes of Luke and Acts is responding to God's word with faith and certainty. Do you see here the differences? And I wonder where between Zechariah and Mary you would put yourself in how you respond. We're often given things from the Lord to believe that are difficult. We're often given commands from the Lord to follow that we struggle with. Maybe you can think of one of those right now. I wonder, are you more like Zechariah saying, Lord, if you just give me a bit more evidence, then I'll believe? Always standing off a little bit, always putting yourself a little bit above the promises in the Word. Or are you more like Mary saying, I don't get everything. I've got so many questions, Lord. But I know you're good. And I know you're trustworthy, so I'm going to walk it out in faith. Because here's the curious paradox of the Christian life. If you always stand on the outside asking for more evidence, You know, the problem is with you, and no amount of evidence ever satisfies you. But if you step in on basis of what you've got from God, then you find out your certainty and your confidence grows. It's like the person who says, I can't get in the swimming pool, it's probably too cold. And you're in there saying, it's great, just get in. No, 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 how do I know? Well, you're never going to know until you're in, so get in. Friends, Christianity is not lived outside in, looking out and looking into it. It's from inside out. You've got to enter in, experience it, experience the reality of it. Trust and obey and grow in certainty that way. Where are you? More like Zechariah or more like Mary? Lastly, then, I want you to see how as Mary and Zechariah then finally do both put their faith and their trust in God, they get great joy, the joy of the promise, verses 39, 20 to 80. 
This last section shows the joy that they both experience, and we really would love to slow down and just spend time on both of their kind of songs of praise. Famously, Mary's is called the Magnificat from the opening phrase in Latin, and Zechariah's is called the Benedictus, from praise be to the Lord, Benedictus be to the Lord of Israel, and you know, sermons have been written on each line of these stanzas, so I feel bad that we're just rushing over it. But I want you to see, first of all, for Zechariah, look at verse 59. Do you see how the joy comes after he obeys God? Verse 59. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they're going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, no, he's going to be called John. Remember the angel said he's got to be called John? They said to her, there isn't anyone among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father. Verse 63, he asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. He's now doing what the angel said. And immediately, verse 64, his mouth was opened, his tongue was set free, and he began to speak. And what did he do? He praised God. You see, joy was unlocked from his heart when he started to obey God. Oh, so often as Christians, we're withholding joy from ourselves because we're being stubborn and untrusting. But if you step into it with faith, suddenly you experience joy. That's what Zechariah had. Similarly, with Mary, You just get this wonderful song of joy from verses 46 to 56. And I want you to notice for both of them what their joy is in. Let me show you, first of all, for Mary, verse 54. Her joy is in this. He, that is God, has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised. Her joy is in the promise Similarly, for Zechariah, verse 69, what's his joy in? He, that is God, has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant. Remembering with God is not that God is divinely forgetful. Remembering is him acting on his his prophecies and his promises long foretold. In other words, he's now finally acting. They're both celebrating that what God has said in history, he's about to do. He is now doing. He's bringing about his salvation. And so they leap forth with joy and praise. And look, that joy and praise is available for us too, right? I mean, after all, do we not have even more certainty than Zechariah and Mary, and it was enough for them? We, We have everything that they've got. We have the eyewitness testimony. We've got the prophecies from Scripture. We've now got Luke's orderly account. We've also got the fulfillment of all these events in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the sending of the Spirit. We've got 2,000 years of witness of the church. We've got the presence of God in your life if you trust in Him. We've got more than them, not less. We often think, oh, if only I could have been Mary or Zechariah. No, friends, you have more reasons to believe, more certainty. And also we've got more joy. Because it's not just the certainty that brings joy, but it's the nature of the promises. Last thing before I close. In verse 25, Elizabeth, Zechariah's wife, says this. The Lord has done this for me. In these days he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Strong, isn't it? She's talking about the fact that she's not being able to bear a child. Why would that be disgraceful? It's not her fault. In the ancient world, in traditional societies, children were 
more than just children. They were symbols of status. You know, for a woman to be able to have children was to be fruitful. It was to be able to contribute in a society that wouldn't let you contribute in lots of other ways. And so to not have children wasn't just painful. It was seen as a social shame, a kind of form of disgrace. And we get the joy of children. We celebrated this morning with Mark and Joe. But they've never felt disgrace for not having children before they could, right? But Elizabeth felt that. And yet what the Lord did in her life was a picture of what he does in the gospel if you trust in Jesus Christ. He moves you from sadness to joy, the greatest joy we can perhaps know this life, the joy of children. He moves you from lifelessness and death in a womb that hadn't been able to conceive to life. He moves you from uncertainty to suddenly the concrete certainty of a baby. You want no certainty? If you get to hold that little one later, you'll know real certainty. There's nothing more certain as a father or a mother than when you hold your little one. It's there. Life in front of you. Joy. And the Lord Jesus Christ, by his death on the cross, moves us from disgrace, the disgrace of not trusting God the Father, not listening to him, always pushing, always saying, I need more evidence, more certainty from you, then I'll obey. He forgives us for that as Jesus Christ, the long-promised one, brings about the salvation that has echoed down the centuries and we've longed for. He says, you want certainty? You want joy in your life that can cope with the instability you feel right now? Put your faith in this. Put your faith in Him and all that He's done for you. The witness of the Scriptures, His life, His death, and His resurrection, which is light breaking into darkness which is a new dawn on an uncertain age. You know, for Rebecca and I, it took us five years to conceive Oliver, and I remember it vividly. Months would come and go, and the questioning, the doubt, the wondering, is it us? And then the joy when it came. And it's just a small glimpse of the joy of the birth of this one, because Oliver gives us great joy, but he hasn't changed the world forever. But this baby, this promise, He's changed everything, so put your trust in Him. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, how we praise You for joy and certainty in the midst of the gospel, and I pray for my friends, those gathered here, those online, wherever they're at this morning, that You would take them one step forward in this joyful certainty. And if there are people here who are waiting from the outside looking in, thinking, I just need more evidence, would they see that You've done enough, Lord, in the witness of the Scripture and the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? In a world that is in constant flux, might they, might we know joyful foundations of certainty to build our lives on, we ask, for Jesus' sake. Amen.